You're listening to the Fearless Futures podcast, where we unpack and interrogate mainstream methods, as well as alternative approaches we have developed and deployed for equity and inclusion, working in daring companies across sectors around the world. Each week, we will explore a new angle you won't want to miss. So stick around. Hello, hello, everyone. I am so excited for the last episode of season two of the Fearless Futures podcast, where I get to chat with the one and onlys, Sara Chavesi and Hannah Naima Maklowski, my colleagues at Fearless Futures. So I'm not going to read bios, although I have read the bios of every single last person that has been a guest on the show thus far. But I figured if you were really, really interested in getting to learn more about our backgrounds, you can kind of just go to the website, fearlessfutures.org, and you'll get to learn more. But for those of you who do not know, Sara, pronouns she and her, she is our learn chief learning officer, and she does a fabulous job, if I might say so myself. <laughs> and then we have none other than Hannah, who some of you know, some of you, this might be your first time hearing from her, but she is our wonderful CEO, and I oftentimes will WhatsApp her Dear Fearless Leader, I need you because she embodies the name (laughs) of our organization. For the entire season thus far, we've been talking to leaders globally from various different organizations about all things inclusion and equity from their perspective, their experiences, and their lens. And we thought, what better way than to wrap up the season talking amongst ourselves and hearing how we incorporate what we teach and try to practice, oh, this is going to rhyme, try to practice what we preach. I promise you that was not intended, but it did come out that way. We're going to talk about some common areas, things we hear a lot, things we experience ourselves. And I'm just really, really excited for this episode. They've been working behind the scenes. And for those of you who have heard various uh, mic drop learning moments throughout the season, Jeremiah Chan being one of them, when I told him towards the end of the episode, he cannot not mention Hannah. This this is who he was talking about. Just wanted to throw that in there for for that moment. So I think that I'm a big fan of Jeremiah's as well, though. Just to be clear, say what is mutual. I might have to stop you too, but you cannot mention Jeremiah. It's okay. This <laughs> this I know we normally go for equality, equity, but sometimes equality is useful in this moment. Okay, so before we jump in. My lovely ladies, it's not like I haven't spoken to you this week or today already, but how are you feeling? Good. Yeah, really good. I've got myself all set up. Look at me. I've got all the gear. You do have all the gear. Hannah, how are you? I'm good. The sun is shining in West London. How is it in New Jersey, Sade? We have sun today. So something that I think our listeners are going to be just very excited to hear from us is how we approach equity and inclusion internally. As I've said, and other leaders have said in different moments throughout the season, throughout the season, you know, it's just not something that happens. You don't just wake up and go, whoop, we're an inclusive organization. I mean, that would be fantastic if that were the case, but you know, it's just not reality. So I thought that we could start with just discussing what we do to carry out and try and live out our values. Um, so folks, this is not going to be as formal as the other episodes. We will be having, you know, just a conversation amongst the three of us but I want to sorry I'm gonna I'm gonna start with you and then we can like free flow the way we always do but how would you say because recruitment is such a hot topic as you both know I mean anytime we're talking about inclusion equity folks are like but we have to recruit more so with that Sara just to kick us off how would you say for us internally recruitment has changed over over the last couple of years I mean it's changed so much over the the what nearly six years I've been here it's I look back at how we did things six years ago and I'm like oh my goodness why did we do it like that and I think recruit we could talk about recruitment we could talk about our programs whatever we're talking about at fearless futures living our values I think equals iteration doing anti-oppression work is synonymous with iterating and it's funny because when you think about iteration when you think about innovation these are like 
snazzy tech or business words, but actually the essence of anti-oppression work, this is what I've learned over, over however many years I've been doing this, is you have to constantly be asking yourself questions and changing things. And it does mean our recruitment to go with that same, like so many areas of our business, has changed so much. We have failed forwards in so many ways, testing things, trying things, and consistently then coming back to the question, who is missing? How are we perpetuating oppression, even if we don't intend to do so? Consistently coming back to those questions. And one example I think that you know, for both of you, I think we could probably talk about a lot is what's referred to as blind recruitment. And that in itself is obviously problematic um, to refer to it as blind recruitment, but where recruiters or organisations do not use the the names of individuals or the universities they went to, addresses, so on and so forth. Um, and we did that and then we stopped. And I think that was a really interesting iteration for us around this idea of what does it mean to say, firstly, I'm going to like take away aspects of who you are and how that's being articulated because somehow that's going to make the process less oppressive, but I'm still going to meet you at some point. I'm still going to have to talk to you. So we went through a whole a whole process there. And I think there was a point, Hannah, wasn't there, where we were like, this is the right approach. We should definitely do this. And then yeah. suddenly we did a whole three, 360 or 180. I don't know which one it is. I think people say 360. I say but it 360, should be but it is a 180. It's a 180. You <laughs> just end up where you started. I know, but I always say 360. <laughs> Welcome to our maths podcast. <laughs> you know, we did, we, we changed. We kind of went from one extreme to the other. And I think that is... The work of anti-oppression is constantly questioning. And I, I don't know if people want to hear that because I think sometimes we want to believe there's like a model or a silver bullet. And if we just do that, we'll be, we'll get anti-oppression right. And anti-oppression because oppression by definition is extraordinarily endemic and deep seated. Anti-oppression work has to be iterative all, all the time. But I don't know if there's anything recruitment wise for either of you you feel like really proud of like yeah we got that right something that I think is really kind of important I actually think a number of candidates have actually like emailed us to let us know this I've seen that more and more yeah Yeah. is how and this honestly isn't to like you know blow our own trumpet but I but I am actually proud of it because I think it did take a lot of work to get there is we now have you know a template for our um, job descriptions and at the back at the bottom end we list all the things that people can expect from the process so we will ask you for um you know phonetically how to pronounce your name we'll ask you at multiple points for your pronouns because your level of um comfort might change through the process we won't ask you for your address um we state that the interviews will all be virtual we let folks know um, the length that they can expect for each round of the interview, how many rounds we expect there to be. And we do all of that up front. And I think for me, I see that specifically through a lens that's challenging disabledism, although it challenges other oppressions at the same time, because we often know that people have to like email and be like, oh, is this going to happen? Or is this going to happen? Can I find out all of it? And they have to do all of that in advance because nobody's given them that information up front. Like that's an important principle, I think, in general is how can we give information about the process, about what we can and what we can't do? It doesn't just have to be all jazz hands. It can also be like, this isn't actually available at this time. Mm. Um, and we're really sorry, but so that people know and so that they can then use their like time and energy in a way that's actually going to be useful to get additional information they need not just because nobody's told them anything in the first place I think that's been great I actually was messaged um, by somebody last week who said oh I looked at a job that you've put out um, and I saw the job description and I'm I'm going to take what you've done at the bottom because it was just so illuminating illuminating to me which you know is a really high sign of praise you know it's Mm. very easy to replicate as well right Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that's something that I'm um, I think we've done really well on over, I think that's maybe the, just the last 18 months to two years that that's been in there. 
Yeah, I think that speaks to like the transparency part that comes up in our programs. Oftentimes people are like, what can we do? It's like, give them information. You know, I don't know why, where this started, but some key pieces of information are treated very like protective and secretive. It's like, you cannot Mm. know until you get to this stage. But when we think about accessibility, it's like, well, how can I actually prepare as a candidate if I have zero idea of what to expect? And I don't know if organizations always think that transparency equals exposure, but the idea that, you know, exposure doesn't have to be a bad thing. It could just be exposing candidates to the process so they can even see if they want to apply like salaries. Hannah, you talk about this on LinkedIn. I know. Oh, <laughs> I know that I oh, do not do what I'm supposed to do on LinkedIn for various reasons that I will not share. <laughs> but, you know, oftentimes it's like one of the things you can do is just give people the salary. So you're not wasting your time sifting through resumes, even if you have, um, you know, all the different ADP softwares and such. And so they don't waste their time, you know, tailoring a salary for the role to find out in round three of the interview, the salary doesn't fit their needs. I honestly think that the salary thing I is just honestly bizarre <laughs> to me. It's such an easy thing to do. I can only presume that companies don't do it because they just want to scam people. That's the only, because it's such an easy thing. It's such an easy thing. You have a budget. You know the role. Like, what's the mystery? Or at least starting at. Maybe you don't want to give the end cap, but you could at least give the bottom of the band. Yeah, I think... It's one of those moments where I look at it and I go, I can I can actually see how you've ended up doing this because potentially to the person that's created the job description, just writing competitive next to the salary means something to them because they have access to cultural knowledge of what competitive means in that industry. And that's where it becomes classist, but also how you see how something that is oppressive can be quite invisible to folks. Like that for me was a really interesting moment seeing that was like, oh, because when you write competitive, you don't, that is illuminating to you because you know that industry because you have insight into that industry. But for anybody that doesn't have insight into, which is lots of people that don't know somebody that's worked in that industry already or don't have access to that to that information, don't know what that means and therefore maybe will therefore decide not to apply. So it's a perfect example, I actually think, of classism at play in a way which feels which cannot be felt at all it can be so invisible to the folks that that, and I think that in general with recruitment is a real thing exactly like with with what you mentioned Hannah around the burden for disabled folks right is oh but that that information's obvious that you'd have xyz or not have access to xyz but when information is available to you there's always a really great question to ask of who might not know this and why might they not know this? And I think that's I think that's a really interesting approach to anti-oppression is going through the route of who has access to what knowledge and who doesn't. Because I think knowledge is 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 key, right, to to oppression is information being held in in certain places. I have seen the emails as well, I've got to say, and it's always really, really heartening to see that folks want to steal or copy whatever words you want to use uh, our approach and and that also people that go through our recruitment processes find them to be enjoyable or as enjoyable as that process can be because we've taken the time to ensure that we're living living our values throughout that outside of recruitment where else do we feel we live our values and we're really proud of that it has to be the program, Sarah. <laughs> I was going to say, Sarah, do you want to say what we're doing in the program? <laughs> I set myself up. Please say it for me. How wonderful our programs are. <laughs> I mean, I think there's lots of places actually, but I am really, really proud of what we've done to our pro. I mean, we've done so many things over the years in terms of, like I said, iteration is anti-oppression. Like you know 
in terms of the presentation of resources, looking at colours, you know, the backgrounds, which might seem to some people unimportant, but of course it's very important for dyslexic learners, looking to ensure that all of our resources are screen reader compatible, ensuring that all our programmes are captioned, ensuring that the length of our programmes itself in being four hours, therefore ensures accessibility for certain disabled folks, for folks with caring responsibilities who just couldn't commit a full day to a programme. I think probably the thing I'm most proud of is actually though our facilitation approach and how we live our values through that. Because that balance between courage and compassion is so hard, so, so, so hard. But there is no anti-oppression without us balancing courage and compassion consistently, without us being courageous to call each other in when we mess up, which is what our facilitators do live in the programmes, right? Consistently every day, but do it in a way which creates room for growth and ensures that folks don't feel punished or disposable in that process. Like for me, that's probably what I'm most proud of is how we've trained our facilitators into that. And we all do it ourselves as well, you know, that balance, because it's bloody hard. And the minute you slide into one without the other, the, the anti-oppressive outcome is jeopardized, I think. I don't know if you both feel the same on that. I completely agree with you, Sarah. I think that facilitating our programs is bloody hard work and really important and an absolute honor to do because I think that learning in public which you do when you do group learning as an adult is such a vulnerable process you know you're exposing yourself to saying I don't know all of these things not all of them but lots of things um and also that I know that there are social risks to saying Mm -hmm. I don't know some of these things in a culture that pretends to value what is good and has some kind of um, and has some bizarre ideas about what goodness might look like even if it doesn't necessarily play out that in reality um so I think that it's really like it's courageous to do learning I think in our environments and I think we meet the courageousness of learners who really dive in with precisely what you described, which is the courage to have like certain principles that we are committed to and a deep commitment that like none of us come to this work fully formed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. None of us are the perfect product, whatever that might even look like. Um, And that we all mess up. Mm-hmm. we don't go around saying well you've got that wrong you know or like <laughs> you um and the desire is not for us to blame or shame people for stuff that is like the air that most of us are breathing um and I think that's is an important it's not the end result obviously of anything but I think it's really important for people to have that learning experience for many people they're like um you know, the engine that then like sets them off on their way um, for whatever it is that they're then going to go and do in their organizational company setting. I think speaking to what you mentioned about um, recruitment, Sarah, and how it's changed over time is what I am proud of when it comes to our programs, the idea of like iterating the design for inclusion that was facilitated in 2018 is not the same design for inclusion that you would see today if someone were a participant. And it speaks to if something isn't working or if something could be better, let's just make it better. Like we don't have to wait. Mm -hmm. And I think in terms of, you know, just certain things that pop up in companies, I think sometimes human behavior or nature, it's like you're just beholden to this idea. Like it was good. The intention was for it to be good. And it's like, that is a beautiful thing. But we discovered that this part of it doesn't work. It doesn't make you a bad person. Doesn't make the program bad or, you know, whatever it might be in context. We just need to work on that bit to make it better if the outcome is supposed to be X, Y, Z. So I think like we thread that idea of what do we need to change, slight tweaks. It's not always a redesign. You know, it might just Mm. be this key moment that has to be, addressed and adjusted and even then that second iteration you might go oh that did not go the way I imagined it to go 
and then you do it again and not being afraid of having to work on something constantly or consistently over time to like get it to magnificent or to get it to great. And I feel like if leaders leaned more into that or if companies had that culture where that was permissible, where you could, you know, acknowledge that this first round might not be the best. But we're going to take the data that we collect and then we're going to go back and we're going to adjust and we're going to do that until it's perfect. I think we can see change and progress happen, you know, in whatever context a lot faster. I think in large organizations in particular, I mean, it might also be the case in smaller ones as well as we know. But I think that that's such a big shift. And I think so often the people that are leading the DNI function and you know bringing in an initiative often have to work so hard to get mm. the thing approved in the first place that the idea that it then in like six months time that you might have enough um, data and I mean that qualitative quantitative you know in all the various ways that we can gain data about whatever the intervention was that the last thing you want to go and tell somebody is oh I need to make these changes because unless they have a commitment to that iterative process, they might just think you were a plonker for having entertained that. I mean, it might have been very solid. You know what I mean? Whatever you might have put forward might have actually been like, you know, ticked all of the principles that you're aiming for. But for whatever reason, there was a, you know, there was a mismatch in desired outcomes, which we know can happen. That's a really hard Mm -hmm. reality that a lot of people are up against. And I think, you know, to the points that you've both made, setting expectations up front for folks leading dni mm. teams about iteration being part of the process yeah. that it's not a one and done jazz hands see you at the finish line experience i think might go some way to change that but that's but it's a wider cultural phenomenon i think in, in a lot of contexts mm-hmm. i wonder if i'm just thinking about my mind's going to like the why why does that happen? So how can we shift that? Because we don't see that in other parts of businesses. You know, if you're launching a new product, products do fail, you know, and there's there's an expectation. I mean, look at history in terms of invention, that product services, some will fail, but they'll be on the road so to the something brilliant. The software updates are, they'll address the bug. <laughs> right, which really does, doesn't it? <laughs> But that's, you know, that's the thing. So how come that permissibility it isn't always felt in DEI spaces? Like why, you know, is it that the stakes feel so high to get it wrong because there is almost a moral a moral position attached to DEI work? Like this is the good work. This is the work of solving some of the really deep, dark horribleness of, of our world in some ways, you know, is... Is it the weight of that? I don't know, but that's obviously that's obviously a question. But one thing that I I feel compelled by is that probably if we all engaged consistently with the history of oppression, you know, because we we do this in our programs so often, you know, the weightiness of it, suddenly the idea that we'd solve it with like one program, one year, would just it has to dissipate because it's to- becomes totally unreasonable. And I wonder whether sometimes it's when we get caught up in the idea, don't we, that like DEI is this one problem in our organisation versus actually DEI workers should always be part of a broader movement responding to a really old, deeply embedded problem. Maybe that's it, that we're just not spending the time. And I say we because, you know, we're, we're all a part of this of this space spending enough time engaging with that historical lens enough. If there was greater emphasis on that history, on understanding oppression as systemic and therefore like deeply complex, non-linear, like you can't like press this button and then like pop out comes this other thing, that there are like all of these other known and unknown forces. In tra- I mean, mm. it's a complex system in and of itself and then there are systems upon systems depending on how we want to use the word system like when we start to see that chaos theory becomes Mm. more appropriate to how we might want to respond um and then a series of you know randomized experiments might be a very good starting point (laughs) for how you then think about what sticks and what works Mm -hmm. say what were you gonna say i was thinking when sarah was speaking 
this idea of, you know, what's permissible in other spaces and then what's not permissible with those who are responsible for DEI. How has that, you know, that connection between I have to get it right this first time because if I do not, I will not have budget to do anything else um, in this space. That dotted line connection between that and like the popularity that it has right now. So it's like, we're not giving folks who have the power and influence within companies the space to say, I'm going to start this journey. But in the midst of this, there's, is, there is going to be some, you know, missteps, some mistakes, but, you know, we have a plan for, you know, to address it and so forth. However, I want to make sure that the world knows that we're very, very, very inclusive. And I'm going to put out these press statements, you know, released. I'm going to have a page dedicated on my website. But internally, you're not actually doing the work that's required to actually have an inclusive workplace. And I'm not sure if, like, companies are connecting those dots or realizing they're actually hard to connect. You won't let people give the space to do the work. Yet we want to like wave the flag. We're an inclusive organization. Look at our policies. Look at our this. Look at our staff page. If that lends itself to the bad reputation that it often has amongst, you know, employees, particularly marginalized employees who who are staffed at these places. I just said a lot, but like that's where my brain was going. <laughs> I wanted to hone on that idea of DEI as popular that you mentioned. Like that really got me thinking, so like how there's the disconnect you outlined, which I think is really profound between DEI is popular, but does it have the resource? Does it have the, the voice within companies? So like, what do we mean by that in terms of it? But I do think there is a growing popularity and I don't know if that's the right word to be honest, folks, but there's a growing, maybe commitment is actually better and more positive word to DEI, or at least I feel there is in organisations. So the problem isn't that people don't see that it's it's a necessary agenda, as you say, say there's, there's a dissonance there mm-hmm. within the, the psyche of some organisations between that commitment and what commitment needs to require of of anyone right if if we're committed to something it needs to be more than than just saying that we're committed it needs to involve work. us taking risks it needs to involve work it needs to involve resource you need to put money into it and i think that's unfortunately with the systems and societies we live within i think when you're committed to something it usually means you have to invest in it I think maybe that's where the disconnect is coming because there's there's a hope that that would come through without the investment in some cases I think there are some spaces that genuinely believe that there are shortcuts Mm. to be taken or that there are infinite quick wins yeah that are going to kind of resolve some of these inequities and I think we know like there might be like one or two quick wins but you're not going to quick win your way (laughs) all all the way through sometimes I think it might be willful willful ignorance Mm -hmm. from those who hold the purse strings or have significant power in organizations and that's my cynical hat on and sometimes it might just be that people really just don't understand that you can't do a quote unquote unconscious bias workshop in an hour and then like magically everything, everything just be transformed. Yeah. So I, I'm there's probably a bit of both knocking about, to be quite mm. honest. And then obviously you do have those, you know, strident individuals that we come across all the time in our work at different companies who are you know they're really going at it and they are pulling at all the levers that they have access to and mobilizing people to and bringing them into these conversations in really interesting and you know curious ways and all of that's happening all at the same time often maybe in a very large department or a function and so you know it's a messy it's a messy picture at times, as we know, in the real world, you know, in the world outside of company context, just as within it. I mean, this isn't exactly what you're speaking to, but it's what jumped out to me, Hannah's like change requires 
a range of different tactics. Mm-hmm. It re- right. requires people moving in lot. And when you speak about those kind of strident individuals that are like pulling at whatever levers they can, that's needed. And we need some sort of structural change. You know, we need any change. And, you know, obviously we as an organisation take a lot of inspiration from movements, historical movements for change, but there is no change without kind of a movement of a range of tactics. And I think that's also maybe a place where we can see DEI fail in organisations where we've got this one or, you know, this one or group of advocates, they're doing everything in their, in their power. <laughs> God bless them. You know, <laughs> you know, they're doing everything they can. And people say this often in DEI work. They say, you know, we can't just have this group of great people over here. We need widespread change. And I think that's where you need to see a range of tactics. Like some tactics might be focused more on culture and symbolism others are focused more on structures and material realities like pay and promotion you know you need all these different things working at the same time it's not that one of them is 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 bad in and of itself but you can't expect a singular policy or so on to create to create widespread change i think it's what i'm really thinking about now is like tactics like how do we get smart to the idea that we need tactical diversity to create change i also think that speaks to like shared responsibility sarah because what Mm. i think we hear i mean we've witnessed it amongst ourselves but we've seen it a lot with participants who are part of you know our different programs but mainly the ones for senior leaders like they naturally get overwhelmed like i can't change the whole world it's like hold on take a breath no one is suggesting that because that is a fact and you cannot change the whole world. But it's like, what are you responsible for where you can change? And I think if you layer that on with that tactical response, then you see it's not the DEI team. It's not the HR function that is often, you know, that DEI is often housed under. You know, it actually needs to be spread across the entire ecosystem of an organization or you will have folks who's been there for five years and they're like, nothing has changed. It's like, well, if you're the only one waving the flag, that would present some difficulty, particularly for, you know, an organization of a certain size. So like starting to see multiple tactics as like shared responsibility. It's not the responsibility of one function internally or a small team to be able to revamp work culture. Like that's just not, it's just not a reality. And that's where with our, oh, sorry, Han, that's where with our work, when we're working with clients, where we work with a range of leaders from like across parts of the business, that's where I get really excited because I'm like, this is where. even change. It's, yeah, I know, so I've got like, excited yeah. in the moment, but it is, that's, that's, I'm sure you both have that as well. I'm like, this is where real change can happen because you are spreading the responsibility for change making across leadership of all parts of your business everyone has to be vigilant to it sorry ham no i didn't even know what i was going to say because i just like got caught up with like (laughs) your your energy there but i I was just going to say like the working with different leaders and then when we get to add consulting on top of that with you know ruby's brilliant work working closely with different um leaders who have responsibility for those bits of internal infrastructure recruitment policies and promotion and when you put that all together when we are working at those different touch points um I think is when we can you know when we're confidently able to kind of say yes you know we've got enough of the we've got the principles here for what it takes to shift an ecosystem in a particular direction um so yeah no I I don't know what I was going to say but I just got excited with you Sarah there (laughs) I'd like to ask a question now that I think people might be interested in, which is that there are some mainstream DEI concepts that like float about, they're on Twitter, they're in the memes. I sound like a boomer, I know. They're on the Twitter. <laughs> they're on the Facebook. They're on the internet. <laughs> they're not they're on the internet where the people are. And we might not necessarily philosophically always um, 
land 100% in those spaces. And I thought it might be interesting for us to just touch on some of those. Sarah, you and I were discussing a couple of weeks ago, the great, the well-known phrase, and I'm going to say it, Mm -hmm. that it's impact over intention. And I feel like, and I know that we have had this in conversation the intention's got a bit of a bad rap over the years. It has, yeah. It has. It has. And I just thought, would you want to, like, share? Can we kind of contextualise this, add a bit of nuance to that one? Obviously, in social justice spaces, in DEI spaces, there's been this move towards impact is more important than intention. And I get what We get why, right? It's, It's the frustration, I think, that comes out with seeing good intentions not always translate into meaningful change or the concern that people care but don't do anything with that caring which I think are really legitimate reasons to be concerned about over indexing on intention but I think the concern that I've really felt personally actually when I've like taken a step back and like analyzed the space we're all in is when we over index on outcome on the impact and ignore intention, we create very little room for growth and grace and productive conversations about doing better next time. If all that matters is getting it right, then what happens if you get it wrong? And you actually, you meant to create real change. What's gonna happen to your motivation if that's what you're judged by? but also your growth and your learning and your ability to do better. And I think in general, that's a challenge in our space, right? Like we have to name that as creating a culture of growth and learning is something that is hard in DI, social justice spaces. And sometimes as organizations and institutions, we can get that wrong and it leads to a culture of fear. People are really scared of messing up. And when people are scared of messing up, they usually don't do anything at all. (laughs) I'm so scared of doing the wrong thing. I'll do nothing. Like that's what happens. And I do think that is a real thing that can happen in these spaces. But for me, that's where I've got to with intention. So we've got to be careful, right? It's not like we're saying only impact matters or only intention matters, but there's a balance here. And if we lose that balance, we get ourselves into a really difficult cultural terrain, I think. I think you're absolutely right, Sarah. And I think I think the other reality is that I think intention does matter because it informs our interpretation. Like, just if we use something very different, if you like shuffle past me and you like your elbow clips my mm. ear, if it's simply that your elbow has clipped my ear, we're in very difficult, different territory. <laughs> than if I know that you actually genuinely and did not intend to do that and just things Mm. happened because it informs how I interpret your behavior and therefore my response. And obviously I'll be like, Sarah, don't do that. Or like, I don't like it. Or maybe I have got a bruise or do you know what it might, whatever those things might be, but I will interpret that behavior very differently. I also will interpret that behavior differently because of our history together. And I have a, I have lots of instances to draw on about my relationship with you or say, both well, you've also clipped me around the ear for whatever in this <laughs> scenario about our relationship together. And I know that your intention is not to do that to me. I can then in- interpret a particular transgression through a different lens. I think if we take intention out of the equation entirely, people's access to humanity, their humanity, i.e. to be able to fail, is made much harder. And we do end up in more carceral regimes where if you don't get it right, we dispose of you. Because what else can we do exactly as you said? And I think you spoke to that idea of like, knowing the history and speaking to patterns I'm going with the ear clipping. I don't know why the elbow is so far up, but here we, we're here now. It's so high. <laughs> Save it so high. I, I have questions about whether or not we we need to re, rescale the building that we're imaginarily in. We're here now. Sorry, you got to commit. But it's like, you know, if 
genuinely or not genuinely generally i get to i walk past you and i'm not you know hitting you with random body parts and and hitting you then you know based on that my lens is oh that was an accident like that was not the goal like sable did not have her elbow up and said i'm going to clip hannah in the head everyone watch you know so i think that sometimes given the history of marginalized communities speaking to what you were mentioning you know previously farah is that because of that history that's often violent um and the legacy still lives on today and then there's present day things happening trying to reconcile that with and as we're working towards justice, we still have to extend ourselves some compassion because it is quite literally impossible to get it right every single last time. The type of pressure that puts on someone, and like you said, sorry, yeah. some folks will work through it and some folks will go, well, I'm just not going to do anything. So not that it's easy to do it in those moments, but it's like, wait, I know this person is this who I know them to be? Obviously, people can change, and that's a rabbit hole we will not go down. But, you know, based on all of the data and anecdotes that I have available to myself, that's not what they were trying to do here. It might have been a, a major mess up that's like, you really didn't see that. But gen they might not have seen it. And having to, having to sit with that and, and moving, moving into a space of what does it look like to reconcile the relationship or to repair you know, whatever might might have transpired between two people or a group or what have you. And I think, Sabe, you, you, you hit the nail on the head there. Obviously, if the person then consistently does the thing afterwards, do you know what I mean? And is always doing the behavior, even when you've shared with them or you and you've, you've acknowledged their intention and in sharing it with them and you've created that space for growth, that's obviously when different terrain there because the person mm -hmm. isn't demonstrating the commitment to repair or to kind of move into a different space with you based on your new needs or or that the new information that they have I also think there might be a distinction here between the interpersonal and individuals in relation to large institutions mm -hmm. yeah that I don't know I don't think I think there are some institutions that don't we don't need to know their intention no. it's not you know, that's not I don't think that's what we're any of us are saying here in this moment because mm -hmm those institutions have been designed specifically right. to inflict violence and I think we we obviously want to make that distinction this is very much located at that interpersonal level. yeah interpersonal level where where we have different patterns that we can draw on because the reality is if we did draw on the patterns of these institutions <laughs> we would see exactly what they stand for consistently over and over and over again, even when new information is given to them. And when you have that level of historic data <laughs> of hundreds of years, the conclusion is the conclusion. So I think, you know, for anyone listening and listening to this, I think that's something that is really important when we're kind of um, challenging that very common refrain. Underline that highlight that yeah very very <laughs> that's Oy. very important don't leave don't leave that bare I think what I'm really interested in actually is assuming good intentions based on patterns I think is really useful but I'm really interested in then a power analysis of intentionality like who gets given the right to good intentions and who doesn't. I think that's where we can do some really important anti-oppressive work is to ensure that we're extending good intentions. Unsurprisingly to both of you, I think about this in football terms quite often. You know, if somebody just goes for it in front of goal when really they should have passed, to me as a spectator, I find if it's a white footballer in the Premier League, it's, oh, he was having a go where my often how I see it is that when black players attempt that or players of color, it's, oh, they're being selfish. And so I think, you know, and I'm, I haven't done a full analysis there of the Premier League folks. That's just kind of my reading of it from what I see. And I don't think it will come as a surprise to anyone with, with the background to racism in sports. But to take that, yeah. to zoom out from that, I think, the point I'm making is really some people get given certain intentionality because of historic 
oppressive systems and how we understand their morality and their character. And that to me is a far more important place to put our energies as people concerned with building anti-oppressive systems and communities and workplaces than to try and ensure that everybody is seen through the lens of having nefarious intentions. I don't think that's very productive, but I think it's really productive if we start asking ourselves those questions. Um, so I still think, I, I think this will be interesting to do in the space of intentionality, but I think for us to have productive relationships, and we talk about this a lot in terms, you know, you have to have productive, positive relationships of trust to be able to build productively together for change. And that requires us to really think about whether or not assuming bad intentions when out comes the impact is not what we wanted it to be is that so productive for us and I don't think it is in this struggle. So Sable another idea that I think comes up often is the idea that hierarchy and structure are inherently oppressive and therefore to do sort of progressive work there needs to be a flat structure perhaps what do you say to that? I think much like what we were just discussing, impact over attention, for those in the social justice space um, and then those from marginalized communities are often leaning on like an historical analysis of how hierarchy and structure has played out and the violence that communities have suffered based on the ways in which certain institutions and systems have been designed. And thus from that, like if you leave it at that, yes, hierarchy would go, you would go, your brain goes, that is inherently oppressive. However, I think using some of SARS words, if we lean into a space of balance, if we look at major movements that have resulted in progress for communities globally, like no matter what the country may be, when you dig into like the mechanics of how they were able to accomplish and achieve whatever it is that they were looking to do, there was significant structure. You know, there was process, there was protocol, there was studying, there was scheduling, you know, a protest in this appears like there were committees there were finances many of the things that we see in present day organizations existed only they were social justice based organizations so to that i say when we think about power because i think that's what folks are up against when i think about hierarchy power isn't inherently impressive if we redistribute the power within a social justice space from an anti-oppressive lens it allows you to see what's possible in terms of what we can work towards, how we can work towards it, and what can be achieved. It's not, you know, we, it's not everyone get the flag, whatever the flag might be. So this could be a country flag, a community flag. Let's all take pictures for social media. Let's hashtag and it just looks like we're having a joyous time. You know, these movements, these historical movements, that was struggle, but it was well organized struggle where there were leaders and committee leaders and team members and everyone played their part, um, but they were working towards the same goal. So I think much like the impact over intention piece, if your analysis stops at what has happened historically, like you said, Hannah, well, the conclusion is the conclusion. However, if you also look at what folks have been able to achieve from, you know, movements in the, the U.S. to movements in India, certain countries to movements in Africa and Latin America and so forth, they required structure. And structure is not inherently bad. I actually find it wonderful because I know what's expected of me. There are managed expectations. I know my role. I know my responsibility, who I'm accountable to beyond myself and then you can see how your role plays a part in the bigger picture you know that's kind of what i would love folks to lean into it doesn't have to be bad um it's not inherently bad 
However, the same way power can be abused, hierarchy can be abused. But if that's not what we're trying to do here, then it could actually be like, a, it could be a cuddly, beautiful thing, this idea of hierarchy, you know? It's like, I know who to go to when I need X, Y, Z for this thing to happen that I've been charged to do. Our leaderships change. Our organizational priorities change. We have restructures. Things change. Agendas shift and move. Something that was important three years ago might come back around, etc. And how do we work in a way which doesn't rely on like linear progress? You know, I'm, I'm drawing a really like grand comparison, but I, do, I, I think it's real that just as our societies shift and change, so do our organizational ecosystems. And we need to create much stronger, and I think this goes for society as well as our workplaces, much stronger foundation stones. We need to build from the bottom up, not going forwards. Um, it's, it's about really creating those stones that hold then when they're, they're impacted by change. I think it was absolutely imperative that you say that, Sarah, because when I think about movements and organizations and a movement, a leader passes, the movement should not die. And mm. in an organization, if, you know, the leader who waved the inclusion and equity flag, the, the highest and with the most, you know, just gusto in their heart, when they go from company A to company B, for company A where they were originally, also like that internal ecosystem structural movement should not die. So the idea of like, what is at the foundation of these movements, be it in an org context or working context, or be it, you know, in a movement outside, if it's dependent upon in, an individual or a few individuals, then already, you know, the work's going to dissipate when those individuals are no longer there or just able to do the work. And I think sometimes that's where, not to be negative, but that's where a lot of weaknesses lie is that it all rests on an individual or a group versus we have the policies, the structure, the processes to continue irrespective of who's there physically to carry it on. Something that I think we really want to share with our audience is our new e-learning module. We're at the final stages now of building it, creating it, ready to launch in the early autumn, which is really, really exciting. So Foundations to Inclusion and Equity is its name. Some people that know Fearless Futures very well, if you've been on one of our programs, you're thinking Fearless Futures, e-learning, like that's not what I expected from you. If that is you thinking that, we also didn't think it was yeah. us either. So you're in good company. Sable, Han, why are we doing this? How did we end up here? Well, I think there's a few reasons we ended up here. One of them being based on our mission and vision as the org, we realized that it could take a long time for an organization who is dedicated to this work that wants to do ecosystem work to go through instructor-led training. And we needed something to circumvent that, not to replace instructor-led training, because there's something really valuable and juicy that happens when you have, you know, participants and a facilitator and what have you. But what if we could give them something prior to that everyone in an organization has shared language, shared understanding, and broad inclusion and equity principles? Because oftentimes when we think about, you know, these DEI folks, whether it's HR or whoever, only leaders are getting this and not always individual contributors. And if we think about everything we've discussed so far, if everyone has a shared responsibility, then everyone has to get something. And it just felt like e-learning was the way to go. But being who we are in the world, we felt that e-learning was like really boring and bad. And we like resisted that this was a solution for quite some time. Like, Anna, how long did we resist this? A long, long time. Because, you know, I think we just had, we've seen e-learning be done in a very like compliance oriented way before where it's, I always like use the kind of terrible anecdote, which is like, you know, 
Jeff pinches Sheila's bum at the photocopier. What do you do? And then it's got, you know, the three options and it's just like no one's learning anything. It's, you know, clearly bad scenarios. You're just clicking. There's no like deep engagement. And I think we just got stuck in the paradigm that we've seen before. And then we were like, yeah, but like bad instructor-led training happens all the time, but we don't think we're really bad at it. We think we're brilliant at it. And like, Bad movies happen all the time, but people don't stop making movies because there's a few, you know, a few bad ones and bad books get written all the time, but you don't just never read another novel again. So I think we then realised that we could create something that did meet our kind of experience, um, the standards we have for learning experiences. And that was super exciting. Really, really exciting. Sarah, what have you been most kind of energized about in terms of this e-learning process? I think it's really challenged us as an organization to think about how we take really complex concepts and make them accessible to folks that we're not with. So we can't ask them questions. We can't like, how do we really get that across? But how do we do it in a way that is historically and geographically inclusive and thinks about these systems of oppression in ways that really speak to their volume and breadth and so on? And that's been a huge challenge, but I've really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed doing that. And I think what learners are going to, I hope, but I, I really do think enjoy about it is that it's giving them the space and the distance to work through some things that are uncomfortable, emotional, perhaps for some people, complex, certainly cerebrally complex, in their own time, in their own space, at their own pace. Like, there's an inclusivity piece there that I love. But there's also just that ability for people to do this work that is just hard in a way that suits them better. And, you know, for many of us, you know, as learners, we all need and want different things. And, you know, all of us on this call being educators, we've done the work of constantly thinking about what do these learners need? And I think the answer is, yet again, different people need different things. And that all needs to be happening in tandem. Leaders in organizations need to take on a specific responsibility and have a specific toolkit for change within their organization. Everybody needs to be learning in a way that suits them. And I think our e-learning module does offer that. And that's really exciting to me. Certainly if we loop that back to the conversation we had right at the beginning of this in terms of the ways that we make our programs as anti-oppressive as possible. Well, it's deeply anti-oppressive, I think, to say, here's a smorgasbord. Here's an offering of all the different ways in which you can do this learning and you can do it in the way that suits you and for organizations I think that will be really exciting like deep deep anti-oppressive learning can happen in different ways and and this is I think for us the the journey into that and that I'm thrilled about really really thrilled about and I have watched parts of it already and I can say Mm -hmm. that with with some certainty. (laughs) I think everyone has a right to this education and unfortunately you know that's not always the case when there's a certain budget that everyone's going to be able to get instructor-led training. But with an e-learning offering that we think is extremely robust in terms of what you get from that two-hour experience, a lot of the videos, the animations, the interactivity, you know, I feel really proud that that everyone in an organisation, that it's cost-effective so, and that everyone can be invested in in that regard. It's not just going there isn't a decision to prioritise some people because of their disproportionate power, which can make sense over others from having um, this education for them to do with as they please. Do you know what I mean? Like there's no, there's nothing obligatory in it, but for them to have access to it in the first place, um, to then have choice about how they might do things differently. And it's beautiful and there are no stick figures. Just wanted to throw that in there. It looks nothing like... The e-learning that made us so hesitant to dive into this world ourselves. And that is something that we're very proud of, how creative it is, it looks and it feels. And, you know, the different folks we've partnered with and who've worked with us to get it to a place where the the takeaways that people feel from our instructor-led learning 
we really, it was very, very important to us that they felt that as well from e-learning. Oh, and it's mobile friendly. If that's not beautiful in the modern century, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. Nothing's more beautiful than mobile friendly in the 21st century. I'm looking at time in true season two fashion. Last question, I promise. I've asked it of everyone, so I'm going to ask it of you too. Um, I'm not going to say who goes first, but if you could have dinner with anyone in the inclusion and equity space, past or present, who would it be? Sable, you have to answer it as well. You've got to answer it as well. I'll answer, I'll answer, but I'm not going first. I think I can go first. I, I, It always feels very instinctive to me. It would be bell hooks. I know, I'm so obvious. That's why I have to say it, because it's just... I'm really consistent. I really would. Rest in power, bell hooks. Yeah. It's so hard. I think he's called David Gilroy and he wrote Racism in Education, um, Coincidence or Conspiracy because he was the first critical race theorist that I ever read. And I know critical race theory is controversial. I'm not going to get into that now, but for silly reasons, because it's, it's an integral discipline and extremely important but that was the first critical race theorist I ever read that really allowed me to understand race and racism just in a way which I think opens up the potential for for really productive anti-racist practice so yeah I feel like my answer would change every week um which some people might find deeply problematic we can we can definitely talk about this offline, but considering where we are in the world right now, it's more of a dotted line, not directly in the equity inclusion space, but I really just need to have um, some tea with Octavia Butler because I have some I questions for her. <laughs> That's why I have some questions. So in 2050, Octavia, what did you see? <laughs> I have had a joy hosting season two and I think it was fabulous to close it out with the two of you. So I know you've been watching and helping behind the scenes for the last couple of months, but I wanted to publicly say thank you, Sara, and thank you, Hannah, for making season two such a blast. And Sable, thank you for your glorious hosting. It's been absolutely brilliant. I've loved seeing season two unfold. It's been fabulous. Thanks so much, Sage. It's been such an enjoyable conversation. 